And on behalf of Pan American Center, I'd like to welcome you to Gutenberg Plugged In, an evening of electronic, on electronic publishing. Computers have been with us now in our homes and workplaces for almost a generation. The first line of computer, personal computers, a do-it-yourself kit of the kind that ham radio operators used to be so fond of, was introduced in the late 1970s. By the early 80s, partly because of the wide availability of the Macintosh, computers were already a highly visible part of our society. No longer restricted to a small cadre of techno-fetishists, researchers, and visionaries, the personal computer began to be an ordinary thing, tool, time saver, file cabinet, bank teller. Maybe only when an invention loses its novelty value and becomes a commonplace can we begin to say that its breadth of purpose really becomes clear. In any case, I think we can all agree that for better or worse, like it or not, we are in the 90s wired. Tonight we're going to ask and try to begin answering some of the questions that digitalization poses for the writers, publishers, and readers. What is electronic publishing, first of all, and what is hypertext? What creative opportunities do they open up? Do readers really want to interact with their reading matter? What happens to storytelling? What is intellectual property, and how do we assign value to it? Now that this property can, in practice, be infinitely reproduced and instantaneously distributed, virtually without cost, how can we protect it? It's worth emphasizing that these issues are being decided right now by people like ourselves, if we are careful to make it our business. The book, As We Know It, will certainly survive, and this evening is neither an invitation to lament or a call to arms. What we hope to do is set aside both the Luddite impulse and any lurking infatuation with gadgetry so that we can begin to inform ourselves. Or as Hal, the runaway computer in 2001, so succinctly put it, I really think you should sit down calmly, take a stress pill, and think this thing over. <laughs> Our moderator tonight is Pamela McCordick who has devoted considerable attention since 1977 to computers and the intellectual ramifications. She is the author or co-author of seven books, most of them concerned with these matters, and her 1977 Machines Who Think is widely considered required reading on the subject. Most recently, she has published Aaron's Code, which examines the applications of artificial intelligence in art and their ramifications. She is currently at work on a book titled Scenarios for the Futures of Women, and she is host of the Pen Cafe, an electronic conference on the New York-based Echo Bulletin Board service. Pamela? I think, uh, actually, before I raise any issues with you uh, and with the panel, we should begin by looking at what it is we're talking about. Uh, we have two representatives this evening from two different electronic publishers. Uh, one is Voyager and one is Eastgate. And uh, they've been kind enough to bring their goods with them and their goodies so we can see them. And um, that seems like the best way to begin because we really can't talk about these issues until we see what it is we're talking about. Um, Miriam, may I ask you to 
Mariam. Let me introduce to you Mariam Mohit. Mariam is uh, executive producer at Voyager, and she's been there for two years. Uh, before that, she worked at Random House uh, for Jason Epstein as an assistant editor, where, as she said, she worked on real books, uh, including uh, the recent autobiography of, of Dr. Lee, the yeah. physician. <laughs> the uh, autobiography of Dr. Lee, who was the physician to Chairman Mao. Um, she wishes me to tell you that she has no technical training. She is not a computer scientist. Uh, she is an artist. And uh, all her experience prior to Voyager was in print publishing, editing hardcover books, mainly nonfiction. Marion? I'm very awed by being called an artist. Um, now, I, I want to give uh, one caveat before I begin showing you these things. I didn't run them all and test them all before uh, this moment because everyone was here and I didn't want to ruin the surprise. So if something crashes, that's just part of the fun of electronic publishing. <laughs> um, and Pamela, please wave your hands if I start going too long because I really don't, I don't want to. <laughs> um, as Pamela said, my background is in print publishing and editing hardcover, mainly nonfiction books. And the way I got into this um, new media, electronic publishing, whatever you want to call it, is a few years ago a friend came back from the Frankfurt Book Fair and brought me something about the OED on CD-ROM. And I thought, my god, this is fantastic. I'll never have to use that magnifying glass again. And so I started looking into electronic publishing, and there wasn't very much um, there wasn't very much information in the print publishing. Is this on? Yeah. Okay. There wasn't very much um, information in the print publishing world at that time, so I really had to ferret it out. And the way I decided to go to Voyager was I looked around for who was doing actual, real, hands-on uh, title uh, development, publishing, and especially work with authors. I found a lot of places that were doing a, a kind of take a lot of data, throw it on a silver disk, and hope that people like to sort through it. But I wasn't interested in that, and I was really interested in the author's role. So the things that I'm going to show you right now, I'm going to try to focus on the author's role in these productions. Um, the author's role is very different from what I thought it was going to be when I first started out. Um, so anyway, I'll just get started and take it from there. Uh, what's up right now is a piece called Who Built America, which was uh, created by Steve Breyer and Roy Rosenzweig over at Hunter College. And it is a translation of a history book that was published by Pantheon by the same name. And what was interesting about this was here you have a table of contents, which should be familiar to all of us. Um, and we started with a form that would be familiar to book readers. Uh, this was published a few, this was in development for a few years, published uh, I think early last year. And there are many things that will be familiar to you. For example, you can type in the margin. Okay, here are my notes that I want to keep. And if I go to the, turn to the next page and turn back, my notes are there. Um, you can um, 
bring up a tool palette that allows you to bold and highlight and underline things the way you would do with a marker um, if you want to. So there are many things that are very book-like about this and very familiar. And at the time, this was a major breakthrough because computers were very scary and scary to authors as well. And people kept getting lost in the programs and not knowing where they were. So there were things that we put in them, such as a progress gauge, which emulates the spine of the book, to make you feel like this was a less ephemeral, more of a concrete object that you could relate to. Um, now, the question, of course, always arises, well, why not just read the book? Um, and what the authors did, and, and the reason that the role of the author was so important in this piece, was that the authors gathered a tremendous number of primary documents which they incorporated into this production, um, both photographs and graphs and movies and audio and all kinds of uh, pieces of, of primary historical material that you really can't get in a book and that I think many people who are studying any historical period would be delighted to have. So it's a little hard for me to see from here. But all the photographs, you can click on them and get them in their full, um, either grayscale or color, uh, whatever the original was. Um, the little railroad tracks going off to the side represents excursions into these primary documents. And let's see what this one is. Um, so I'll just show you a couple of these to give you a sense of the work that went into it from the author's point of view. And I stress the author because there's no one else really who can do this. The authors, they're the scholars. They're the ones who know the history. And it couldn't be turned over to, um, to other people who didn't share their, their vision of, of what uh, issues were important in American history. So you can leave these here as you go through if you're interested. You don't have to um, shuffle through papers or flip back and forth. They hang out there. And then when you want to see them again, you can just open them up. Or you can put them away. Um, let's see. There's a chair in front of the thing that I'm looking for. So I wanted to. OK, this is a, um, a movie. of one of the first movies ever taken inside an American factory. And I think that this is going to show an example of how a multimedia version of this book, which was put together by the authors with the documents that they thought were important, can really add a lot. In April 1904, Billy Bitzer, who would later become famous as the cameraman for film director D.W. Griffith, climbed onto an overhead crane to capture the grand scale of the Westinghouse Air Brake and Electric Motor Company's vast plants in the Pittsburgh suburbs. His dramatic footage is one of the first efforts to document the workings of a factory on film. So I'll just pause it there. And there are hundreds of documents in this piece, which of course I don't have time to show. Um, but I think this gives you a, a good idea of where one of the beginnings uh, of multimedia productions that we've done. I will just quit out of this quickly and launch the next program.
Now the next thing I'm going to show you is an old favorite that everyone I think is familiar with. It is a um, multimedia version of Macbeth. And we worked here with two professors at UCLA to, uh, to compile this and annotate this edition. And we annotated it also with audio of the entire play so that on any line you can click on that line and hear it spoken as, as in the drama. wait for it to launch. Now this I think is a pretty obvious application for new technologies because Macbeth is something that can be read and, and thought about on a lot of different levels and this brings it out more so I think than a book with annotations that you then go flipping back and, and forth in. my single state of man that function is smothered in smiles, and nothing is but what is not. So if we just jump right into the play, here you can see that the authors have done a tremendous amount of work, and in close collaboration with a producer at Voyager. Um, one of the elements of the author's role in these types of works is that it's collaborative, where you have someone who is there, like an editor or like a movie director uh, and an actor. The roles are very malleable and fluid depending on what people are interested in and what the author can bring to the process. But what I found over the last two years is that the more the author is committed to the overall multimedia production, the better the result is. Because if someone says, I've written this piece, here, take it, do something with it, it then, in the translation, loses something of the author's vision. And the author, if the author is, takes the idea of a writer and broadens it to encompass all the media that are at that author's disposal, then you can create something that has more of a singular vision, which is, I think, what's lacking in a lot of multimedia products that are out there. So here you have uh, the play. So you can, as I said, click on any line and, and hear it, which I think is important, especially for people who are reading Macbeth for the first time. Uh, we also included different versions, so you can see how different people have interpreted Macbeth. And the authors have contributed commentary as to how this version is different from other versions. I, I don't want to take up too much time. Um, we also have Kurosawa's version, although it's not translated. But um, there are quite a few interesting things in this in this piece that I think bring 
um, an enrichment to the play and can help give people access into the play when they might uh, otherwise be um, intimidated. Here are some of the other things that are in here, summaries and commentaries by the author's essays. Uh, the concordance is especially interesting. to start right at the beginning and you can see each word and how many times it appears. This is something that the computer is very good at and so it's very nice to be able to put that to some real use that people will actually find interesting that could save a lot of graduate students a lot of time. <laughs> I don't know if the Macbeth karaoke is going to work but I'll try it because people seem to like it. Now this it was put in, the idea for this was, was to give people a sense of what actors have to deal with in, in acting Macbeth. Um, let's see here, choose your part. Who should I be? Ooh, maybe I'll be Macbeth. Let's see, play the karaoke. Um, I'll just start it right there. And here, this little dot shows me where I am. Oh, is that me? Oh, no. First, as I am, his kinsman and his subject, blah, 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 blah. Oh, hmm. I don't have much Lady Macbeth here to play against. Hold on one second. Well, maybe I'm not going to be prepared to do this. It seems to have changed somewhat since the last time I saw it. But basically the idea basically the idea is that um, if I knew how to do it, or if I wasn't in front of you know several hundred people, so I had time to figure it out, um, it would play the one part, and then you have to say your part when the time comes up, and you have to play against that part and kind of feel what it feels like to be saying the words yourself. Um, and I think that that's probably the most interactive part of this program, um, where you're actually forced to do something. And the question that was brought up at the very beginning about do people want to interact with their reading materials, I mean, I think in a lot of cases the answer is no, definitely not. They want an author who's better at storytelling than they are, or who has this particular vision of storytelling to tell them a story. But in this case, I think that you know there is some kind of real intellectual rationale for interactivity. The next thing I'm going to show you is actually about inter, uh, artificial intelligence. It's a piece that we did with Marvin Minsky from the MIT Media Lab and sorry about that. Um, it, it's part of a series that we started called First Person and the idea behind the series is to um, work with people who are preeminent in their field and really just see what they want to do in this medium and see how the medium can inspire them. And this is all part of the changing role or the developing role of the author. And I really feel like the, um, uh, the first one was with Stephen Jay Gould about e evolution. This is with Marvin Minsky. We did one with Don Norman about interface design. And I think that the uh, programs really reflect the author's own take on the medium and kind of what they were willing to do and how willing they were to get into it. Um, so the idea is to take their, their people who are very good speakers and 
take their writings and pair them together so that people, you know, not everybody is a student at the MIT Media Lab, so we'd like to give the opportunity to um, have the author there commenting on, on his ideas. Um, t if anyone happens to be interested in technical things, this was the first program where we brought video out of the square box and had the author actually uh, moving around on the page. That is a copyright page. So I'm going to the first page um, in the piece. One other thing I'll just say in passing that I learned is that authors and, and, and a lot of people really want fancy introductions, but let me tell you, you know, well, the first time you play it and you hear some music, you think that's great, and then the 27th time you play it, you think, oh God, why don't that just go away? Um, anyway, this block is a navigational tool that shows you an ideas index that shows the ideas that are in each section, and you can trace them throughout the entire book. When we went to Marvin to say, you know, let's do this, um, let's do a, a multimedia piece, he kind of jumped up and down and said, I've always wanted to put my book, The Society of Mind, into uh, a hypercard, hypertext environment because I, wa I wanted it to be very modular and it just never really worked on the printed page. So, so we were, of course, thrilled. Um, the AV section allows you to get movies that are relevant to each section in the book. If you ask people, what are they? And they'll say, well, I'm me. Uh, what's that? Well, if, they're, if they've studied a philosophy course, maybe they'll say, well, I have a body and a mind. I say, well, we know all about bodies, and the human body isn't very different from a guinea pig body anyway, so uh, nothing, nothing so great about that, except for... Okay, so I'll just stop this and move on, because I think I have about five more minutes left. Um, let's see. So basically, in each section, he pops up in different ways and talks about different things. It does not repeat the text. It, it, he comments in addition to the text. So these are things which you would not get just in in the plain book. Um, and I'll just show you one more, if I can remember where it is. Mm -hmm. I can't remember where it is. We also um, went into his living room, which is one of the messiest places I've ever been in my life. and. Um, uh, took, took a shot and uh, did some filming so that you can pan around the living room and click on different objects and he'll tell you about them. Um, so it's kind of like an, a very detailed about the author. Let's see, how about that one? That's Gene Roddenberry and the crew of Star Trek The New Generation. And uh, there's Dan Quayle somewhere in there. Uh, Dan Quayle was a space enthusiast, as everyone knows, and uh, this was an uh, event at his home, which had the crew of Star Trek on one side and the Mercury 7 astronauts on the other. And it was a great party, and people were swapping all sorts of tall stories. Uh, I'm not sure 
uh, whether Dan Quayle understood that Star Trek wasn't real. So that kind of gives you a certain insight into the author's personality that you might not get when he's talking about artificial intelligence, although it is related to artificial intelligence. Okay, now exceedingly quickly, I'm going to show you one little bit from Art Spiegelman's mouse. This was a different kind of uh, relationship with the author because he was very skeptical of the media when the project first started. And the idea was to take the MoMA show and sort of recreate it on disc and thereby allow uh, hopefully a wider, an even wider audience to, to look um, behind the scenes at the making of Mouse and what went into it. And um, this was a, a mammoth production job, a mammoth job of, of um, working with the sketches, working with the audio, the video, and it's very interesting because art has come to understand a lot about the medium and about both what its, what its possibilities and its limitations are. So quickly, I will go to this section just to show you one piece of what it was like to take something that was not um, initially a, a prose um, piece and translate it. He had um, 22 hours of audio interviews with his father that were sitting on cassette in his apartment, um, kind of rotting away. Um, so here you have sketches of each panel. You can see the evolution of the sketches that he did. Um, these were carefully selected from a lot of sketches that he had. Um, So you can see the evolution of the ideas that he was working on and how it grew into the panel that was finally there. And then he was gracious enough to do interviews with us. It was kind of not one I planned on doing, obviously, when I was planning the book, but it was the only way I could move forward, make the obstacles manifest. So I had to do this thing that now had a different layer of presence than anything that happened before. There was a present with Vladek and me talking, and then there was the past with his story. All of a sudden, we now had a kind of super-present. And the super-present is done with certain devices. OK, so in the interest of time, I will um, stop there and just um, you can see that there are, is a family tree. There are maps. There are also, oh, very interestingly, many of the primary documents that he used in his research, such as uh, photographs of the concentration camps, um, where aerial photographs that were in now declassified CIA files um, that really give you a sense of the life work that this became for him and all of the work that went into it. Um, here, this icon indicates that there are research documents associated with this panel. And these were the photographs I was mentioning. Um, one last point about this, and I'm very sorry that I, I have to quit without taking questions. I really like to get questions and then answer them by showing examples. But um, one of the things that I think is a real challenge for authors in this medium is to, to create emotional um, 
relationships between the viewer, user, whatever you want to call that person, and the piece that's being shown on something as cold and inhuman as a computer. But I think that Mouse is a very good example of how truly emotional content can come across even in the computer medium. So I'll just stop right there. contributions include information farming. And when I was told this on the phone, I said, oh, I, I'm, I'm not hearing you correctly. Information farming? And no, I was told information farming. And uh, I was told that that meant um, information stored in a way where it will develop itself and become better. <laughs> Automatic link discovery. Uh, he's designed and implemented several authoring environments, including uh, StorySpace. When I first saw StorySpace, it was love at first sight for me. Exactly. I wanted to do that. I just had to do that. And uh, I got myself a disc and began. And it has been wonderful. It has really changed the way I, I write. Um, as background, uh, he helped found Eastgate in 1982, so he's been in the business for a long time. He got his undergraduate degree from Swarthmore, which of those of you who know about hypertext will know is also where Ted Nelson went. That may, name may mean something to you. Uh, and his graduate degree from Harvard. Are you ready or do I keep? Almost. I okay. I, I shall also tell you that Should I interviewed Marvin Lewski in that same room that you just saw a picture of. And uh, I had to laugh because it looked exactly that same way 10 years ago. For all I know, it's the same stuff. I'm sure it is. <laughs> okay. Well, the computer seems to be slightly the worst for wear coming from Boston. So while the computer comes back, we'll try to do without it. Uh, I want to start talking a little bit about the history of hypertext and take as a jumping off point the cold and inhuman property of computers. When you think about it, writing is something that is essentially vital and human, but the production and manufacture and vending of writing isn't a particularly human activity or a humane activity, if you will. Uh, it's not clear whether chopping up trees and turning them into sludge and then turning them into pages and then shipping the pages around the world is warm and human. Let me get this started, I hope. The problem then is not really the inhumanity of the computer, but what this thing is as a medium for writers. After all, 
How does writing on a computer change writing? Well, we all know that it changes the process of writing because most of us have at some point or other used a word processor or something like it. There was a time when people said, I'll never use a word processor, and my mother remembers that time. Uh, my mother, on the other hand, can't remember a time when newspaper people didn't use typewriters. But her grandmother remembers when newspaper people complained about the introduction of typewriters. Let's see if we can. The problem then is not what we write with, but what it does for writing. The problem is not whether the computer is a bad place to write, but what sort of a place is it to write in. The book is just engineering. It's just an artifact. Writing is magic. The book is mundane. The book isn't the result, the perfect end product of centuries and millennia of evolution. The book is always changing. And the book changes today. Technology and mercantilism have something to do with it, but so do the viscosity of ink, the way people's eyes work. What happens to the book if people don't have eyeglasses? What happens to the book if we didn't have electric lights anymore? What happens to the book if we once again started to read out loud? What happens to the book if we don't want to ship chopped trees around the world anymore and we have a choice? Things change. Whether or not Homer was a particularly talented singer is a matter lost to us, and the impact of Homer's singing on his art is at best leaves tiny traces in our record. This doesn't change our perception of Homer. The important thing that writing on a computer lets us do is not have a binding. This is a subtle point. It's one that Ted Nelson stumbled upon in college in the 60s, coined the term hypertext to describe in the late 60s, in which people started actually being able to do on real computers in the mid-80s. If we are writing a long work and we're going to give it to other people, that work needs to be put together in one single sequence. It needs to be bound in time at the time we create it, just as this talk is bound in time. After I stop shuffling the slides and say, this is the order they're going to be in. That's not necessarily a good thing. And in fact, that's why we have talks and we don't do this on video, because if there's a sudden disturbance in the audience or someone poses a really good question, I can still reshuffle this entire talk. If this is a book, though, even if you stop me and say, wait, this is wrong, there's no way for me to recover. Nonlinear writing, letting the book thread itself together as the reader chooses, rather than for the one ideal reader, the myth out there, is what uh, writing on the screen lets us do.
Another way of saying this, or another aspect of this, or another feature of this, is that we have a chance to conduct a real dialogue with the reader. That is, at the end of a page, at the end of a sentence, at the end of an episode, at the end of any moment in writing, I can ask the reader for a response. In fact, I can insist that the reader respond in a more active way than turning the page. I can give the reader lots of choices for what could come next. I don't need to tell the reader what it is that comes next, though I may. I don't need to hide this from the reader, though I may. I can lie to the reader. I can deceive the reader. I can play practical jokes on the reader. I can do many of the things that I can do as a performer. Yet this isn't performance. You don't have to be there. As we've seen, the screen tends to break writing up into chunks, just as the slides in a talk don't look much or feel much like the talk written out, the, sim the simulacrum of the talk. Breaking the line is something that hypertext is uniquely good at. In fact, for a long time, it seemed that the only thing you could do with the line in a hypertext was break it. In fact, Stuart Malthrop's Victory Garden was probably the first large hypertext that had a convincing, large, complex, and rich narrative line to it. What had come before tended to say more this line is broken than that there is a tale here. On the other hand, we need not treat the screen as the invisible proscenium, the page which fades into our imagination as soon as we can convince the reader that they're not reading their imagining. We can treat the stuff on the screen as if it is a thing and write fictive worlds or narrative worlds or descriptive or didactic or polemic worlds which pose as artifacts. This is a approach which was first made conscious by John McDade in Uncle Buddy's Phantom Funhouse, a hypertext in which you receive a box, a chocolate box filled with death, and a letter from a law firm saying, surprise, you are the literary executor of the late Arthur Newkirk, who you may have known as Uncle Buddy. Because the reader has to stop and ask, what am I going to do here? What should I click? What comes here? Which of these choices do I want? Hypertext enforces multiple readings. You don't have a choice. All those things your English professors in high school tried to get you to do, read the thing over and over again, are part of the essence in a hypertext because the work may not exist in one reading. The work may only accumulate when seen through many readings and the alternate diffractive paths which you could follow. This also means that contrary to much of what you'll read in the business press, hypertext and multimedia do not necessarily go together as natural twins. 
It is true that you can do wonderful things with illustration on computer screens, and it changes the economics of publishing in bizarre and delightful ways. Color doesn't cost anything extra. Motion doesn't cost much extra. We can have as many or as few illustrations as we want, and the printer won't complain. Neither will the budget, for the most part. But if you have a performance embedded in a medium that's constantly asking the reader to think of themselves, you do have a problem. Because on the one hand, you have an actor who is trying hard to make people forget about themselves and a medium that's trying hard to make people think about what they're feeling and thinking and wanting. Another thing you can do with the electric page is change it. You can write on it. You can write on it just like the writer wrote on it in the first place. Who's the writer? Suggestions for further reading. Book length. Uh, I just grabbed the best books off my bookshelf here, which are written on paper. One of these, J. David Bolter's Writing Space, is available in an alternate hypertext edition. Another, Landau's Hypertext, The Convergence of Contemporary Critical Theory and Technology, is available in electronic pub uh, publication as well as on paper. But the important thing is not to speculate about hypertext. It's to actually experience hypertext, and better yet, to do hypertext, to be hypertext, to write more hypertext. The real problem is having hypertext to read and study and understand. Where are we? When asked to demonstrate hypertext, I was faced with the conundrum that how on earth do you demonstrate a book? I mean, there's got to be one here somewhere, but reading is private, and it's difficult to demonstrate. What's worse, when you start showing books, you start looking at things that are not really germane to the nature of books. I was recently at the University of Uppsala where they have a wonderful showcase with lots of books in it, including the diary of a saint who was on her way to uh, Compostela in 13-something and had some pages left over, so wrote some tips for good living on the uh, back. But this wasn't what she had intended those pages to be, sitting in a case for people to study the composition of the paper and the layout and the color of the ink. This piece is forthcoming, two weeks from now. It's Catherine Kramer's In Small and Large Pieces. Hi, I'm Catherine Kramer. Um, I'll read for you until we run out of time. Um, this is my title page. Um, this is a brutal and nasty dark fantasy hypertext. And uh, I don't have video mirroring, so I'm going to have to watch this on the screen here. Um, in any case, uh, this is called In Small and Large Pieces, and it's a work of dark fantasy set in the 1970s, and it's about teenage kids who are fighting, and uh, the, the protagonist is a teenage girl, and she has this problem. Her parents 
fall apart in crises. They disintegrate into little segments about, you know, their fingers, toes, etc. And she has to reassemble them so that they can deal with the problem. So anyway, um, we don't quite have all of the fonts here, so this is going to be a little bit awkward looking, but I'm going to read um, what I see on the screen. This is a frontispiece. And I was somewhat annoyed with my inability to navigate through other hypertext, so I put in tables of contents. This has what I, can, what I would call a surface text, which is if you hit return every time, you get a perfectly satisfactory short story. However, if you hold down option and command, you see links on each of these pages. And um, in each of these cases, it will show you all of the other places you could go rather than hitting return. Um, and uh, so these, these links are intended as seduction. You can, you can hit return every time and you can read a short story and you can go all the way through quite linearly and it will start out at the beginning and it will come to the end. But there's much you would miss. And now I'm going to read. In another moment, Anna was gone. Now there was no one in the mirror, only her bedroom with no one there. And certainly she was beginning to melt away, just like a bright silvery mist. In the mirror, she saw Martin leave the room, and where her own reflection should have been, she saw a face with blue eyes, Martin. By the way, there are, there are links all over these things. And this picture here is in, intended as a seduction to look for further pictures. This is the last picture you will see if you just hit return every time. I should say that I have done the furthest out in terms of nonlinearity in hypertext in one sense, in that... Um, in an ordinary book, there is one way to turn the page for every page. You just sort of go like this, and it turns. And I live in a house with vastly more books than Marvin Minsky's living room, and so I'm quite familiar with this process. In this hypertext, there are on, on average five ways to turn the page. It's broken. It doesn't work anymore, she thought. But she knew the situation was worse than that. And whatever else was in doubt, she knew that her current confusion was Martin's fault. For a few moments, Anna and the mirror Martin stared at each other, both frozen with fear and bewilderment. Now, we all know what hypertext is supposed to be for in that, you know, you get the idea from watching a couple of multimedia demos that when you click on a word, it will give you a definition. Um, mine is perverse rather than... Um, explanatory. So you get frozen and you get a poem. And uh, you get the poem. She was told not to eat anything the day of the appointment, was told to use an enema before she came to the doctor's office. It was her first and only enema. This is in a section you would never see if you were in the ordinary surface text. Um, there's I had a point of view problem. You would think that in nonlinear narrative, the problem was plot, how you figured out what was happening and what the sequence of events are. Any of us who've read the coverage of the O.J. Simpson trial know that we don't need to know the exact sequence in which things were presented at the trial. Um, all we have to do is read the headlines every week or so, and we know what you know <coughs> whether he's uh, losing or winning. And uh, in any case, basically, the problem is point of view. What we're seeing, what we're seeing here in uh, her rather bad poems um, is her point of view in terms of what's going on in, in her life in, um, outside the context of the 48-hour period in which this takes place. Inside the 48-hour period, it is so much in the same point of view. It is so claustrophobic you can't get out of her head. All you can do is encounter and re-encounter the fragmentary elements of her own experience. 
And um, I haven't actually brought you to the p my favorite parts where you encounter the grand unified parent, which is her solution to the problem of parental dis disintegration, but you'll have to buy it and read it. <laughs> Good night. speakers might make their opening statements, and I realized once more how tangled, how vexed the whole issue of electronic text is. Uh, do we begin with what it is? Well, we did begin with what it is. Uh, you just saw several examples. Do we ask ourselves how we promote it, how we protect it, um, how we prevent it from making a demolition derby of the culture of the book? Uh, and thus, Western civilization. But to ask any of those questions, uh, we have to come back to what electron electronic text is. Um, once, when I was buried in the archives, uh, I came across somebody's claim that went like this. What a wonderful thing computer-generated images are. Nature gave us the ability to express our ideas as fast as we could put them into words but we have never been able to do that with images until now. And there I was in the Columbia University Library looking at this and thinking, what can this person mean? But I, I throw it out to you, it may be true. The arguments about it flow thick and fast. Uh, does information want to be free, in the words of Stuart Brand? Uh, he means a vital thing, um, almost amounting to desire on the part of information or ideas. What is it that everybody's getting so upset about? Um, are we amusing ourselves to death, as Neil Postman claims? Is this the end of the culture of the book? Yes, but the beginning of the golden age of text, as J. David Bolter, whom you just heard referred to, uh, argues in his book. Um, is it the fulfillment of Western arts and letters, as Richard Lanham asks? Well, you've seen the demonstrations. You have some idea of what it is, and even what it might be to you as writers, as publishers, and above all, as readers. So let me, um, rather arbitrarily to be sure, uh, address some of these questions to some of the creators of these forms. You, you've heard from two of our panelists. I'm now going to ask the other panelists to uh, make very brief statements. I promised you five minutes. I may cut you down because we're running a little bit late. Uh, but let me begin now. Uh, Miriam, is there anything you wish to add to what you had to say? No, certainly I'm eager to get to questions. Okay, fine. Stuart Malthrop. Thanks. Oops. Hi. Can people hear me? Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, this will be far less than five, I think. In fact, I'm going to start not by uh, speaking in my own person, but uh, by pointing you to something that many of you probably read this morning. This is Nicholson Baker's op-ed piece in the Times called Info Highwaymen. Um, 
there's a, a very interesting paragraph in it uh, to, to set the stage for this piece. Uh, Baker discovered that several of his magazine uh, articles have been posted uh, or, or made available through the internet. Actually, they're available by fax uh, in ways that, that do not generate royalties for him. Um, it's, it's piracy, folks. Uh, and he, he goes on to uh, make a rather interesting analysis of the situation and, and uh, make a case for something he calls madcap, which would be the equivalent of ASCAP uh, royalty generations for writers. Um, and, and if you haven't read the piece, I'll leave you to do it. But there is one paragraph that I think may be relevant to what we're doing here. He says, these groups that have uh, taken his, his rights away, quote, are playing on the confusion that reigns in the area of electronic document delivery and on the fears of some magazine editors that if they don't go online somehow fast, they will be left twirling twigs to make fire in the imminent hypertextual bouleversement. <laughs> this isn't going to happen, says Nicholson Baker, but in the interim, a few companies have found that there, there is money to be made off of open-ended deals with fretful editorial departments. What I want to respond to is, is Baker's quick take. This isn't going to happen. I both agree and disagree. Um, hypertext is going to happen, so I disagree. Bouleversement, reversal, overturning, revolution, no. Uh, but something's happening. and. What I'm going to do in about the minute I've got remaining is, is simply open the door to something we haven't talked about yet, and that is the Internet. Uh, that's what Baker's talking about in this piece. We've talked about CD-ROM publication. We've talked about on-disk publication, electronic books, electronic novels. They're wonderful, wonderful things. The Voyager products are really lovely. Uh, but this is not the universe. This is only a part of it. There is another part of it. Part of that other part is called the World Wide Web. It is an international distributed hypertext system. And currently, if you write for it, your rights in copyright are extremely nebulous and perhaps non-existent. And this is a set of issues that we will need to address both here and, and later. And I'm just going to put those questions on the table. Thank you, Stuart. I forgot to add uh, that Stuart is not only the author of Victory Garden, but he is at the moment uh, composing a new text graphic fiction on the World Wide Web, which is a subset of the Internet. I owe it to New York Magazine to know that 60% of Americans have never even heard of the Internet. If you've heard of it, you're in the 40% minority. Um, Mark, is there anything you wish to add to what we saw? Two little things. One is a pie chart I saw in, I think it was Publishers Weekly. New Media News. Thank you. Sorry, Publishers Weekly. Uh, on about the truth of putting together a, a CD-ROM title. And this was a budget pie chart. And they have the amount you might expect to pay for uh, production and video and photography, and sound, and legal, and all sorts of things that you might forget you had to pay for. They didn't have a wedge for writing. Editorial wasn't there. There was no budget for writing. This ties to a list of myths I put together, first of which is multimedia is the answer. Second myth is that nobody reads anymore. The whole enterprise is damned and doomed, and 
television as where the future lies. The third is that the net is the answer and authors are going to go away. Writers will go away and will be replaced by a collective voice. The fourth is that piracy is the problem. The fifth is that original writing doesn't matter anymore, that writers are too expensive and too old-fashioned. The sixth and final one is that there's a right tool to use. Usually, modestly put, it's a right tool to use and we're working on it now. <laughs> it, but it's not, I used to say, you've got to use all the tools and use them well and cleverly and learn their normal thing. And then I looked at what people were actually doing. Notice most of the best writing seems to come from people who really know the tools and then write in ways that the tools just hate. Writing against the grain of what the tool wants seems to be, at least at this particular moment in time, unusually productive. Thank you. Let's move on to another publisher. Uh, I'd like to introduce Thomas Lipscomb. Uh, Tom is founder and president of InfoSafe Systems, a New York-based company which uses uh, proprietary technology to create what he calls advantaged systems for secure distribution, marketing control, auditing, and so on, of di valuable digital information. Uh, Tom wanted me to say that his software has won prizes for excellence, both from Siebold and from Advertising Age. In other words, it isn't just vaporware, as we say in the trade. Uh, his career began in textbook publishing at Bob's Merrill. From there, he went to Stein and Day, uh, to Prentice Hall, uh, to Dodd Mee. He became president of Charter Publishing, which is the home of many magazines that are familiar to you, such as Ladies Home Journal, Red Book, Photo Play. Uh, and then he went to the New York Times Book Division, uh, where he edited a number of distinguished books, including uh, some Pulitzer and National Book Award winners, such as The Russians by Hedrick uh, Smith, Alive in the Bitter Sea by Fox Butterfield, and a National Book Award uh, winner in translation, O. Mayakovsky. So the reason I dwell on this wonderful career is because it is very wide-ranging, and it is what has convinced him of the relevance of electronic publishing, digital publishing, to many fields. And he said to me provocatively on the phone, the economics of this business are finally going to change in favor of the creative artist. Tom. We'll get to the creative artist profitability, which some of you may be interested in later in this talk. Uh, thank you very much, Pamela. How many people here are members of PIN? Do I see hands? And how many people here use computers? Right. Okay. What we are seeing in the dialogue of the death that goes on between technology and publishing uh, is really a battle of two organizational units in the economy who really are both very arrogant and want to solve the other company's problems themselves. Uh, there's nothing like going to a publishing company and having a fellow who can barely use a computer discuss the technology issues that they're dealing with in their publishing company. The only thing that's more fun than that is going to Microsoft, where they tell you what a book is. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think it's very good for all of us to remember that kid in the Peter Arno cartoon uh, who says, I say it's spinach and I say the hell with it. Okay? Uh, keep a good skeptical mind together. I, I've got one in this area. I don't think anyone likes to change unless they have to. Uh, I'm a great 
lover of Wallace Stevens, uh, and I think many authors want to be a shearsman of sorts, uh, and some women want to be the single artificer of the world. Uh, what is the artist's position? This is a new tool. What does this tool do? What we've seen on the screen is confusing. Uh, it's confusing because it is something that is protean and coming into being as we see it. Is this a production like a movie in which the author is one of three authors but all get fired until somebody finally comes in at the last minute and gets credit for the screenplay? And meanwhile, you've got people working on scenarios and special effects. And who the hell creates this thing anyway? And what is it? And was there an overall overarching view of this to begin with? Uh, there are some major questions of art that are here that I don't want to be glossed over. Uh, I want to stress the, the unintelligence by which the technology is being handled by most of its practitioners just to remind you of what you already know as artists. Uh, Microsoft, which has lost millions and millions of dollars in its, in its CD-ROM publishing program, has recently put out a perfectly marvelous piece of musicology on the Sacre du Printemps. I don't know if any of you have seen this thing, but it's great fun. You click on something and you get extraordinary stuff. There's only one small problem. For those of us who are high-tech enough to want to use one of these CD-ROMs to begin with, we probably also like music enough to want to hear it in stereo, and it's monaural sound. Okay? Uh, what we're looking at here is not dissimilar to the world of the video game back in the 1970s, where this great creation, the video game, was something that went ping and pong on a television set. Remember that? Okay. That's about how much multimedia capability we have right now. A 486 or a Pentium chip may seem dazzling to us if we want to recalculate a 123 spreadsheet uh, or just do something and make a quick copy on a disk. But it is the slowest thing in the world if you really want to suddenly bring up a picture of full motion video off something as slow as a CD-ROM to fetch from. Uh, we're dealing with media problems here where the processors are too slow, the storage isn't big enough. Right now we have 660 megabytes. To a guy who thought a 10 meg hard disk was something he would never fill up just a few years ago, this now seems like maybe it's the solar system in size. IBM is already working on something that is 100 times this size and about the same size disk. So we can see the packing density of this medium will get big enough to have some real information. In the interim, we go to, TV, to shows for multimedia, like the one I saw here at the Javits convention a few weeks ago, where we get to see in something the size of a postage stamp, Casablanca, 16 frames per second. The voice sounds like it's coming out of a button speaker, maybe a hearing aid level, and we get to hear deathless lines from these two Mickey Mouse type voices in something I can't see, having lost my fighter pilot vision of my youth, in a postage stamp. And the guy looks up at you and says, isn't it great? And I said, no, it's terrible. <laughs> and I said, but do you realize what we had to do with the processor and the framus and the Bibelfits and all that? I said, I don't care. It is not commercially or artistically in the least interesting to me. You've just taken me back seven generations in the art that I once experienced in black and white in a motion picture theater, and you've given me a lousy computer product to boot. What is this game all about? Well, it's about artists struggling here in the science, the art of science, struggling with a new medium to learn what it does well. What computers do well, as we know, is they are rifle shooters. If you want to find out 
like poor Hinman did with his collating machine, to take Shakespeare's quartos and run them all through and find variations from one printing to another and learn whether this was a textual variant or a scribal variant or it came in the printing process and what did Shakespeare mean by this passage, there's nothing like a computer to save you about 20 years hard work. But if you really want to get down to create an artistic context or to take a wider question of what does this mean, a computer is practically useless. That's the area of artificial intelligence which we have barely scratched the surface on. Any computer scientist worth his salt can go on for hours about what computers can't do. And in looking at this medium and thinking about it as artists, you need to think about the many things it can't do as well as the things that it can do. I want to talk a little bit about how I got into this business. After all, I've been a publisher for 20 years of my career. And the thing that got me into it was exactly what Malthrop brought up. What are the rights of an artist in this environment? If I put 1,000 books, 500 pages long each, it'll fill this stage to about nine feet high. If I want to steal those books, it requires a Teamster contract, <laughs> or at least a nice Jewish boy with truck, okay, and a major bribe to the elevator operator here at McGraw-Hill. But if I put it on this desk, it cost me 87 cents to create this disc. And I've got 1,000 books, 500 pages long each. Is that the way I want to read Harmonium and say a Knopf first edition? Hell no. That's a book. It really is a book. And we need to think about what a book is and why books have certain advantages over these other formats. But if I want the statistical abstract of the United States or who's who in America or the Corpus Juris Coelis, or any number of other things. And if you take the 50,000 books published every year, about 25,000 are not books. They're databases in a lousy format, okay? So there is room in which this new technology will be right on the edge of utility. It's tremendously useful in any number of ways. In the areas in which you exist, how is it useful? That's one of the things I think we're going to talk about today. But I'd like to talk first about the evolution that takes place between one technology and another. You're in a fascinating period. There's a Greek term called sycamithia, which means the way something that was one thing becomes another. The Parthenon's a perfect example. It is a building that takes practically no advantage of stone architecture. It's a wooden temple built of stone. If you look at Body by Fisher, if you have a General Motors product, it goes back to the days when GM started in Detroit, Michigan, and there was a carriage company in town called Fisher that made the best carriages in town, so if you want to get the rich families in town to switch over to your, your contraption, you want to give them at least they got a Fisher body. Right now, the first things publishers have been doing in this new medium is to try to freeze the book and put it on a disc, okay? So in effect, you get all the disadvantages of a book and all the disadvantages of an electronic medium. <laughs> the folks you've seen here on stage are fighting through that. They're attempting to strike out and say, what does this medium bring to what an artist can do? Uh, what kind of things can you add? Then the next question is, well, how much is the span of control of an artist? Or when does an artist become a collaboration? And who has the final judgment on that? And we all remember that the Polish actress who slept with the writer uh, in, the, in a production of this moment, we end up in a very different set of economic realities. I got involved in this area because I was interested in protecting the author's rights. Hard though it may be for many of you to believe, that's what publishers do. We're a holder in due course of your rights according to the contract conveyed to us by the agent who did such a lousy job negotiating it with us. <laughs> <laughs> 
And it's our job to do two things, to sell those rights aggressively. Don't laugh, please. All right. Uh, and secondly, to go and protect it against any other theft that takes place. That's one thing in the book business. If you're an electronic medium, as Mr. Molthrop mentioned, and you're on the Internet, you're in big trouble because monitoring this is very difficult. What I did is with Dr. Nagel, who I see in the back, my chief scientist, who created Reuters Electronic News and Tellerate, which are very fine real-time electronic system, we created a system at InfoSafe which could protect each parcel, each packet, like the packet switching that telephone systems use, against theft by a technical and proprietary way that we treat it. So in effect, the author could identify their product and move it through any number of electronic and digital means of distribution and still get paid at the end of the day. One, the reason it's good news, as Pamela said, is that this gives an author an ability to move their information perhaps outside of contemporary publishing reality and in more of a direct marketing context. So there are some very good news for you here as well. And that's enough. Thank you. Let me move on to Mike Godwin. Mike is online counsel for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, uh, which is the premier civil rights organization in cyberspace. Uh, he advises users of electronic networks about their legal rights and responsibilities. He instructs criminal lawyers and law enforcement personnel about computer civil liberties issues, and he conducts seminars about civil liberties in electronic communication for a wide range of groups. Um, he's published articles for print and electronic publications on topics such as electronic searches and seizures, uh, the First Amendment and electronic publications, and the application of international law to computer communications. Mike. Uh, just to pick up on what Tom uh, uh, closed with, uh, there is good news and bad news. Uh, uh, and Tom closed on the good news. I think the good news is that you know, one of the irritating things about being a, a writer or an artist is that above and beyond the skills that you have to acquire to create your work, you have to acquire this discrete separate set of skills involving marketing your work, you know, and negotiating uh, with publishers or even negotiating with your agent, uh, which sometimes is much more difficult than negotiating with your publisher. Uh, and, uh, but you have to acquire this skill that has nothing to do with being a poet. It has nothing to do with being a novelist. Uh, and in fact, one can easily imagine that there are many mute and glorious Miltons uh, who, are, who, would, who would not be mute were it not for the fact that they had not acquired the second set of skills that had nothing to do with their art. Uh, to, the, to a very large extent, communi computer communications uh, solves that problem because it becomes possible for people uh, uh, to reach out and reach new audiences without the intermediary of publishers. And I think it's very liberating. I write a lot for the net. Uh, and one of the things that is very exciting for me is that, you know, with an investment of one or two thousand dollars on my desk, I can reach uh, uh, far more people than I used to reach when I was the editor of a newspaper uh, and was working from uh, about a million dollars worth of capitalization. Uh, so that's very exciting. Now, the bad news is I'm not entirely sure about how you're going to get paid. Um, you know, for many people, people who work in some fields, that's less of a problem. I mean, uh, uh, the market for poetry being what it is, uh, poets typically are writing for love rather than for money uh, in any case. And so being able to reach an audience 
may be the primary concern for people who are riding uh, 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 in, in areas where there are not strong commercial markets. Uh, but I, I want to tell you that uh, this revolution is occurring, and I think that uh, efforts like Tom's, uh, which are designed to help you protect your interests in copyright, are, uh, to a certain extent, while useful, are also swimming against a tide that is rising. And I want to tell you a little bit about how I think the legal system may have to adjust. Um, it's worth remembering that the Copyright Act was originally uh, uh, created, the, it, the copyright laws were originally created to protect publishers and only later on were they understood to uh, protect authors. But even, uh, uh, even when it was understood that copyright uh, interests are belong to authors, it still is a problem, it still was not a particular problem, rather, to police those copyright interests, because to be a pirate, as Tom says, uh, or to steal a book or to pirate a book normally used, used to take an immense capitalization, an immense highly capitalized enterprise. You know, you could find the book factories, you could find the printing presses, you could actually trace them very easily, but now we have technology that is on everyone's desk, or soon to be everyone's desk, uh, that actually makes everyone a potential infringer of somebody's copyright interests. Uh, it turns out to be trivial to infringe copyright now, uh, and to infringe it in meaningful ways. Uh, so we have to think about what our response is to this. Now one response uh, is, is the people suggest is education. They say, well, we should just tell people that it is morally wrong to infringe on copyright, and if we teach people this in the first grade, <laughs> and just keep telling them this along, yeah, you know, then then uh, people won't infringe. Well, I compare that to you know, I'm a lawyer and I'm pretty knowledgeable about copyright law. This morning I was online on the system Echo, which is based in New York. And uh, I was having an argument about uh, Katie Royfe's book the morning after. Somebody was saying it said X, and I said, no, it said Y. And I said, well, you know, I actually have a, co I actually have a chunk of the text online on another system. So I logged into the other system, copied it, and went and pasted it and said, see, this is what she really says. Um, now, I just infringed on her copyright. <laughs> you know, and I thought I was defending her. Um, uh, but, but... The, the interesting thing about that to me is that it seemed like a very normal human thing to do. If, if you and I were having a conversation about a writer, it would be very normal for us to say, well, let's just see what Eliot says, and we'd go pick up a copy, and one of us would read Sweeney Among the Nightingales, you know, and then we would find out what exactly he said, and, and we wouldn't even think about it in terms of copyright because copyright interests are not implicated in that act. But the way we converse online is necessarily involves making copies of people's words. Uh, otherwise, we're only talking about things by reference, and that's always very unsatisfying. Uh, but it's very natural for people uh, in the course of discussing books or the ideas of the day to copy other people's uh, words and, uh, and use them. And in fact, I note that in this particular case, what I did is I went to another system and copied some of my own words and used them because I thought I'd written an argument pretty well on the well, and so I brought it over to Echo and just repeated it. Um, but, but I don't think education is going to be the fix because I think it's very human to use copying technology to copy. Uh, so what is the fix? Well, one possibility that's talked about is the use of encryption technologies, uh, and there are various ways to use encryption technologies to, to, uh, to uh, uh, digitally sign 
uh, a literary work so that as you send it out across the net uh, or as you sell it to a, a copy to a particular individual, if it resurfaces elsewhere, um, uh, then you can see that it, that it was, you know, somebody uh, violated the first sale doctrine and resold the book or did something else with it. There are ways to use encryption technology to do that. Uh, it turns out to be kind of tricky, uh, uh, however, to, to use encryption technology. It's, 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 it narrows the bottleneck, but not by much. In fact, William Gibson is sort of rather famous for having uh, produced a poem called Agrippa that was designed, uh, when you read it, to, to, to immediately erase itself as you were reading it. It was a bit of performance art. Uh, within a week of its release, a hacker had, taken, had abstracted the text and made it available on the internet. I have a copy in my home directory. <laughs> um, so it turns out that encryption, uh, although encryption can protect, protect stuff, encryption by its nature is either encoding things or, or else it's assigning things. Uh, but it turns out to be very easy to let the wine out of the bottle. Uh, and if it's not easy for a, a, if it's not easy now, it becomes easier uh, as, as people uh, try to solve that problem just for the challenge of it. Uh, there are legal, of course, there are legal remedies that are worth considering. And I'm, by the way, I'm vastly oversimplifying the encryption issue, but I, I want to move on uh, in the allotted time. And that's that people say, well, you know, what we could do is we could arrange to have a contract with end users so that if the end user takes this, uh, takes Nicholson Baker's article off of Nexus, uh, you know, we actually have a digital signature so we can see that he's, he's copied it, he's taken it off of Nexus, and he's recirculated it in violation of the agreement. Uh, we can go sue them. Uh, that turns out, it turns out that suing people is not necessarily the most uh, easy thing to do. Uh, and, and in fact, even if you find it very easy to take action, or a publisher which has in-house lawyers and also has outside law firms finds it very easy to sue people and bring the wrath of the law down on infringers, what happens when the defendant doesn't have any money? You know, we're... The kinds of people who buy paperbacks, for example, including, I include myself, don't necessarily have a lot of money. I mean, paperbacks, by their very nature, are inexpensive. Um, so I'm not sure what the remedies are. I tend to think that there's a King Canute issue here, I, you know, with regard to protection of copyright. But many people, but I, I don't want to give you the impression that if you're a writer and you have an investment in intellectual property, uh, you know, doom is at hand. Uh, Shakespeare, as you recall, wrote 37, some say 38 plays without any copyright protection at all. Uh, there are other incentive systems that exist out there, uh, and there are many more that we can explore. If it turns out that copyright is, if at the end of copyright protection is at hand, all that means is that we'll live in a new world, but not necessarily a worse one. And I suspect that authors will always be able to be paid. Uh, uh, and there will be different systems. I note that some of the great uh, uh, information revolutionary events in this century, from libraries to Samizdat, have occurred actually in violation of the uh, Copyright Act. And I include the Internet uh, as well in discussing that. Uh, one of the things I note, uh, and I'm going to close my remarks really just with this observation, uh, one of the things I noticed that with the CD-ROMs that we saw demonstrated here, there's typically not a copyright infringement problem, at least not yet, uh, because they're huge. <laughs> it turns out that it takes forever to download those things over the phone lines, and so as a result, people tend not to infringe on them. But I found a way with the wonderful Voyager uh, CD-ROM 
on mouse uh, because one of the exciting things about mouse, and I think it's a wonderful product, uh, is that uh, they have the original transcript of Vladek's interviews with Ar with Artie. So you can actually read the text, and you can see how Artie adapted it to the book. And I said, you know, wouldn't it be neat if I could abstract that text from the CD-ROM? Well, it turns out to be difficult with the hypertext engine uh, that you normally have reading CD-ROM. But I, I have a product called On Location on my Macintosh, mm -hmm. and I indexed it, and I yanked all the text right out. It took about <laughs> half an hour. Um, and I'm flattered by your perseverance. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, but I promise I didn't spread it to anyone, so I think I'm still well within the, my my license. Well, um, but I, but the th the point is that if I can do it, and I'm not even a programmer, I think that people will naturally tend to try and break down the barriers that we try to put up around copyright interests. Well, let, let's pursue uh, this. You are both in the situation of having work out there. Uh, how do you feel about what? it? How do you protect yourselves? Pamela, can I make just one sort of closing remark? And that's that uh, I believe very strongly that the traditional book is going to be with us for a long time. And I think that even if we were worried about copyright interests, one of the things, books turn out to be the easiest things in the world to pirate because you can put a whole book on a floppy disk. Uh, but because of that, uh, because they're very efficient in how they convey information, it may be easy, may be hard to maintain your copyright interest. But on the other hand, you have the prospect of books propagating out on the networks and virally infecting minds that you might otherwise never have reached. Uh, and I think that's a very exciting prospect. Uh, let me say that I will get to questions from the audience uh, in just a little while, uh, very, very briefly. Uh, but I do want to ask the, the panelists to... I'd be happy to go to questions now if you want. There, there are more issues to bring up. Right, I yeah, think so we many issues. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, fine. Can with you... Well, that. Balance, balance. We have a strange perspective since most everything we do is original. And almost everything we do comes from someone who wants to do it in that medium. That is, we see mostly textual works with some art or we see artists' works with some text, or occasionally we'll find a writer and an illustrator have gotten together in a collaboration. But in either case, they come to us and we treat them all like writers and they all get royalties. Uh, what I meant to say there was not that the cost to the publisher from the creator is small. It may or may not be. But that when you go to the printer, you don't have to pay for special paper because you want this to be in color. You don't have to pay for special binding or you don't have to worry about a format. Could you speak into the microphone? We are recording this. Um, commenting on your first statement regarding information wanting to be free, um, you didn't complete the sentence. The response that we've seen nowadays on the net is information wants to be free and authors want to be paid. Um, Promptly. Yeah. 
Ideally. Now, speaking as probably, I believe, the only person in the room who has actually collected money for a book sold over the internet. Um, Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. We, we thought it was kind of impressive, too. Um, we had come up with, we are also concerned about the issues of piracy on the internet. What we discovered was, since there was, since technological ways to protect against piracy, as Mike pointed out, really aren't quite that solid, Please hold your remarks on that until you talk to me further. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Hey, hey we sell encryption technology too, so uh, you know, it's we, not. We I, I think stuff. I think the issue, as Mike said, is a very complicated one, and you need to look into it a little more firmly. Okay. Well, you've got. Again, we'll, let's do this after the panel. Um, but what we just what we did is we treated piracy as a media ecology question, and we discovered that there are two types of piracy: there's supply side piracy and demand side piracy. Supply-side piracy is somebody setting up shop on the internet, for example, and saying, here, I've got this book that I downloaded for free, and I'm giving it out to anybody. Those people you can catch comparatively quickly and comparatively easily. And demand-side piracy doesn't end up being as big of a drain. Somebody going saying, I'm looking for a copy of this book. Because what we discovered is, as compared to, say, computer software, where everybody needs a word processor, there are only about a dozen of them on the market, and they all cost about $300 a shot. When you're dealing with books, the average- Can I ask you to wind down? I'm sorry. Um, the, average peop the average readership of a book is maybe 50,000, 100,000 units. Average. Average. Um, in some cases, huh? it's as high as a few million. In some cases, it's much smaller. Yeah. And most people don't read the same material. For the time it takes you to actually find a copy that, somebody, that you can pirate from somebody else, you might as well get it from the original source. Also, one other thing regarding piracy. I, I think you've had your okay. turn, and I'd like okay. to open it to other people, please. Um, I, I, happens, I happen to be one of the editors who published one of the pieces that Nicholson Baker was talking about in today's um, Times. I'd like to point something out. Although we did put that out on Nexus with the issue of the magazine, obviously it wasn't taken from Nexus because he pointed to the fact that there, was, there are many typos and misspellings. Somebody I don't think he cites Nexus by, by name. I, I don't think he mentions Nexus by name. He, he doesn't. Well, that's yeah. where, if it yeah. had been taken off the net, it would have been taken off Nexus. Somebody would have been able to, to download from Nexus. But obviously that what didn't happen. Somebody took the time to type it in and mm. type it badly. Mm. That could have been done anywhere. Yes, mm. that's right. right. Well, they, scanned, they probably scanned it in. That's where the typos came from. Uh, can we go into the back of the room here? We have uh, some, sorry to make. I'm going to repeat the question because we're recording. Uh, the question was, how well does anybody on the panel think that trade publications are covering these new developments? You mean like ad age, that sort of thing? Like advertising age? Right. Ad week. Ad week. Not well. <laughs> I think the greatest, the greatest commentary on multimedia coverage is by the chairman of Procter & Gamble, who you may recall 
brought all his agencies out to Cincinnati to tell them not one of them could give him his multimedia alternatives in the advertising marketplace, and most agencies are doing a lousy job right now trying to field their options for their clients. A question back there. chair of the journalism campaign of the National Writers Union in New York City. And um, the particular ripoff that Nicholson Baker was referring to in the Times is actually discovered by um, one of our journalism campaign people out in the Bay Area in California. Um, it came off a service called Magazine Index, which is owned by the Zip Davis, Davis Corporation. Yeah. Um, that's apart from the fact that it's frequent that there are misspellings that because there's retyping of into Nexus. It's, it's not unusual for there to be those kinds of mistakes but just wasn't, wasn't from Nexus. Um, the, the more substantive point that I wanted to make is number one, that the Writers Union on an ongoing basis now <coughs> is trying to keep track of, of, the, uh, of the unauthorized use of our members' material over electronic databases. And on the prophylactic side, um, we've developed for journalists in particular um, a contract that specifies that in selling a particular article to a particular publication, you're only selling first-time print publication rights and not electronic uh, reuse, performance, reproduction, anything like that, because it's become a very, very common problem for magazines and newspapers to just wholly and, and without thinking about it, dump everybody's material um, onto different online services. Thank you. Uh, it is a problem. Let me turn the problem around. Penn has spent most of its time of existence looking at freedom of expression issues. How are the censors going to deal with freedom of expression when anybody can pick up anything and get it anywhere at any time? Anybody in the panel? They're going to have a miserable time of it. I had some fun back with some South African uh, members of, of the the party that is now in power, uh, these were journalists, black journalists in South Africa who had no way of communicating inside of South Africa because they were spread around different cities and if they went through the phone system or tried to use their modems, they got screwed up and got intercepted by the police. So we did the entire thing through MCI mail by porting it through the states first and then back to Johannesburg or wherever it was going. Uh, so this is an ideal world for the, the, the person who wants to receive an audience through the censorship. Uh, you know, I have to say that um, the the most appropriate comment that I've ever heard on this subject comes from uh, John Gilmore, who said that the the internet, uh, which of course was designed to uh, withstand a nuclear attack, uh, interprets attempts at censorship as damage and routes around them. That's interesting. Uh, uh, I think that one of the things that we're going to see uh, in the near term is a tension between intellectual property holders and, and the free flow of information on the net. Uh, as, as, I, as I noted before, when we talk, you know, we, we refer to writings uh, very easily, and there's no issue of copyright infringement. But the only way you can converse online, at least at present, in any kind of meaningful way, is to write words, to type those words, and send them to other people. That means when you refer to other people's works, you often are copying them, and you raise copyright issues. Uh, to the extent that we see people, and I, I, I think we're seeing it now, we're seeing the beginnings of it now, to the extent that we see intellectual property holders getting kind of panicky about this and uh, seeking increased penalties uh, for copyright infringement, which, by the way, the Bruce Lehman report uh, from uh, the Information Infrastructure Task Force 
does, uh, we're seeing a kind of a thrashing that ultimately will damage freedom of speech. Uh, uh, I hope. Can, can I cut in a sec? I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. Uh, you just brought up the Lehman report, which which I was about to, to try to spring on you. I'm glad you well, brought it up. Go ahead but, and go. but I, I want to, if I can, point that at your example of, of the bit you copied from Royfi's book, because it immediately occurred to me that you were not violating copyright. That could have been fair use. At least it would feel to me like fair use. The, 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 the tricky part about fair use uh, is is that there's no bright line test. Uh, right. And, and so what happens is we find out that something's fair use after it's been litigated, mm -hmm. but the threat of litigation itself is very chilling. But one could at least uh, entertain the fantasy that it might have been fair use under the current Oh, law. I did entertain that fantasy. <laughs> sure I hasten to say. But, but under the recommendations of the Lehman Report, there's no question that what you did would not be fair use. There is no provision for fair use. That's right. In fact, the Lehman Report, the Lehman Report would close what it regards as gaps, but the rest of us regard it as freedom of speech. Um, go ahead, Mark. Yeah. I'll, before we declared the danger of censorship dead, and this does in fact make censorship much, much harder, and probably makes censorship in something that doesn't feel like a police state extraordinarily difficult, there are two potential problems. One is that information agents are getting better and better, and they can sift through immense amounts of data very quickly it would not be difficult to write an agent that would track down subversive, in the McCarthy sense of the term, writing on the internet to its source today. That could be dangerous sometime in the future. More insidious is the propensity for electronic publication being malleable and alterable and, in fact, inviting alteration and customization to allow very subtle and insidious form of censorship. For example, there's a French interactive movie novel which lets you specify at the beginning how much, uh, whether you want it to be R-rated or PG-rated, how much clothing you want removed in the course of the story. Now, that's kind of silly, but this could, the same technology could easily be used to switch on whether you want to have a creationist or evolutionary viewpoint in freshman biology. And that could be terribly dangerous. So it's not a completely free ride. There's a question over here. Um, hold on a second. The microphone's coming your way. Um, one, this is Austin. Yeah, uh, one of the issues that it seemed like you weren't dealing with was some of the, the technical aspects of paying for material which is which is uh, downloaded from an online source, and that they, I don't think that there's any mechanism by which, if you download something from something other than Nexus or one of these specific services, that that you can pay for it or, or you can be billed for it. Well, let me finish, please. Excuse me. Uh, secondly, uh, another question which that raises is, what is the value of stuff which is? I mean, how do you isolate the intellectual value of something as opposed to what you pay for when you buy a book? A book is not just a book. Uh, I mean, you know, people enjoy books because they not only contain information, but they're also furnishings, their their possessions. You know, they have there are all kind of, uh, uh, of other aspects of books which aren't contained in electronic information. So, how do you value uh, a magazine article which is downloaded from some source uh, as opposed to uh, you know buying the magazine? Or and how is how does that differ from going to the library and making a photocopy? Pamela, can I take that? Yes, go ahead. Uh, I, that's those are both very provocative questions. Uh, First of all, on the question of pricing, 
I'd like to disabuse people of the notion that online is the only digital world that exists, first of all. There are many ways of moving digital information. A CD-ROM is four and a half days of 9600 baud transmission. If I send this by Federal Express for 15 bucks and 87 cents for the disk, you've just gotten yourself what Lexus charges $250 an hour for for four and a half days, not including the document material. Keep thinking of digital information as existing in many ways, whether it comes off a satellite, whether it comes online, the internet, or off a CD-ROM. These are all different transmission means of a digital signal. That's what the digital convergence is all about, okay? So the question really is, properties that exist in this environment, whether they are movies, whether they are books, <coughs> whether they're one magazine article, whether they're a citation, how do we price this kind of thing if we can protect it, which we say is a problem and which we believe we have a solution to, and there are other solutions as well. Frankly, this is done by the market. I've had this conversation with the New York Times. Uh, today's New York Times is, is 65 cents or 70 or whatever we're paying for it today. Uh, but one article from the New York Times may be well worth $100 to me that's a day old. Uh, so when you can break things up to components that are outside of the original media structure, a book, after all, is often a media-bound group of information. It was set up in that format because it cost X amount of dollars, and it could only be printed in a run of 12,500 copies, and so the price is X, and therefore you got, but you have to buy all of it. You can't buy a piece of it. I can't buy one biography from Who's Who. I have to buy 79,000 of them, and the price structure is $365. In a digital environment, presumably you can buy one biography. Is a $1 price right? Does that make sense to you from a $365 book? These are market questions. If we can divide, as we can in digital media, product based upon what the customer wants to pull rather than what we, the publisher, want to push as a product, okay, we can create a new commerce market in which buying and selling information can be a poem at a time, an article at a time, a site at a time, where once we had to buy the medium that we may not want. Okay. Let me let me briefly talk about an experiment that, uh, in the marketing that was done with Bruce Sterling's book, The Hacker Crackdown. Uh, Bruce published that book uh, in, in hardback, and then in due time, Bantam published the paperback. At the time the paperback was published, Bruce had arranged with the publisher uh, to make uh, digital copies available of the text uh, available for free on the Internet. Uh, they, this, this experiment seems not to have damaged the paperback sales, which are quite good. In fact, there is at least there's an argument that it has enhanced them by exposing more people to the text. It gives more people incentives to go dig up the paperbacks uh, rather than seeing them found with the covers torn off in the, or in the remainder bin. I'm told that it damaged the foreign sales, but I, I actually doubt that. Uh, there's a question in the back. Lady yes, in the <laughs> balcony. Uh, I'm a fiction writer, and what many of us are concerned about is when we sign a contract with the publisher uh, today, we have they, we have no option. We give away the electronic rights. Am I listening correctly? And authors are very that I know are very concerned about this. Um, but from what I have been able to glean tonight. There's no issue, right? Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> it's a major issue, and you should be fighting like hell on it. But it's, it's something that is not uh, negotiable uh, with anyone that I've... I just want to say I've been working with the Society of Authors representatives and also trying to get Penn interested in this problem. I think 
this is something that the writers' organizations have got to get on immediately. Let me give you, let me give you a major reason for it. When, when, as a publisher, I quite often would give the author and his agent 100% of the movie rights. My publishing company couldn't afford to raise $40 million and go out and produce a movie. That wasn't the business we were in. So I didn't feel I had any right at all to your movie rights as something that I got, and I published, say, Susan Isaac's Compromising Positions, which was a first novel. I took the whole risk on a first novel from Susan, who was a Long Island housewife no one had heard of, okay? Made a lot of money with the movie. I didn't get a penny of it, nor should I. Why, if these people have to raise a million and a half dollars to create a multimedia product that the publisher hasn't the internal ability to handle at all, uh, should, they be, should the publisher be taking 40%, 60%, or whatever the hell they think they should be taking of a totally new field that they have no ability to exploit and no ability to impact? You should be working on that through your organization, the National Writers Union, PEN, the, the uh, Authors Guild, every damn one of them to fight on this because you have lots of precedent for your stand. I would also add that in a case where the publisher has the um, person who's taking the subright is getting some benefit from the work the publisher has done. Say, for example, they are giving you electronic files of the things, which means you don't have to scan them in and proofread them and copy edit them all over again and spend $20,000 doing that. There can be an argument for the publisher getting some benefit for having done that work. But other than that, it, you know, if the author or the author's agent comes and finds the multimedia publisher or if the multimedia publisher finds the author and the agent says, we want to publish your work, it is very much like a movie right. It's something yeah. which many publishers are not set up to handle. And when, once they prove that they are set up to handle them, that may change. Yes, here at the circle. just doing hardcover books, mm -hmm. and they sold the reprints. And when they saw that there was money there, they got into the reprint business. Every company now has a new media department. Whether they can make them or they can't make them, they have those departments. And, and what they see is that everything is going digital. The, the argument is, if we have given you the opportunity to take your work and make it the first entity, we have done the marketing, the distribution, we've supported you, we are part of this package, and electronic rights are part of what we want, and it's not negotiable. And we have to stick together, and I appreciate Mr. Lipscomb's remarks, because I was at the meeting when you came and spoke to the agents. I'm an agent. And it isn't getting better. There are euphemisms, there are new words that weren't even used here tonight that are in those contracts, and nobody knows how to read them. I called a lawyer, a top, top lawyer, who said, what? I don't even know that word. Not, not to put too paranoid a point on it, um, the, the indications in the Lehman Report suggest that industry is, is really sort of linking shoulders to, to steamroll anybody who's got content, lock it all down, and never give you a chance to get these rights I'd back. sue them under RICO. I, I, would, I, I, <laughs> I would. I'm not kidding I would, you. I, would also I, I, think you're, I think the agents are lying down and being tabby cats on this. Wait. I think they should get off their asses and fight, and you authors have to make them fight. I would also add, however, that the whole issue of the subright of the book is going to become a minor issue because very soon the sublicensing of a book is going to be a tiny part of the production. I mean, I stay up nights and nights 
creating multimedia projects, and there's so much more work that goes into it in addition to, to the right of the book, which then becomes one of the minor rights. And you then have to go inside a new contract with the author for the additional work that they're going to do, which is really what I think it's going to become when people like Catherine Kramer are creating something new for right. the medium, which can't be sublicensed from anyone, which is going to be ultimately more appropriate to the medium. Sorry, just to, to understand the question, is the question, are there people who will first create a multimedia project and then publish yeah, a book right. based on that? Oh, certainly. Yeah, that's, that's what Alice to Ocean is. Uh, yeah, certainly there are people who will, will do that you know, when it's appropriate. There's a fairly well-known piece called From Alice to Ocean where the multimedia project was From Alice to Ocean, uh, which Addison Wesley published as a CD-ROM and a book and a coffee table book together where the CD-ROM was really the thing that drove the marketing of the project. So it didn't lose as much money as it would have. Probably. I, I don't have inside <laughs> scoop. <laughs> Definitely. In fact, we have people coming up to us all the time wanting to do that. And the truth is, we're a small company. We're not equipped to do that at this moment. But I do think that there will be cases when someone creates something for a multimedia and then a book is a derivative of that. And there'll be joint ventures between small companies. Uh, Pardon? There'll be joint ventures between small companies, as you... As there, you yes, definitely. Yeah. The problem is the arrogance of publisher-producers is very high. If you haven't got a huge name at, that they can bring something to help sell the product, the tendency is for them to put their own production operations into effect. So there's a real tension here between whether you can write in this new medium, whether you get hooked up with it at the right time, and how you handle your career. Well, just to ask a small technical question, the, I've been debating upgrading my word processor because the next generation talks about hypertext. Now, I know it's limited. You know, you can put tags in, but even that would be helpful. To do. I'm willing to develop myself well, that's one of the most important things is the willingness to get in there and muck around with the tools and get frustrated the same way that you got hmm. frustrated the first time you tried to write a sentence with a, pe with a pencil. You know, it's really just struggling with the Pam, creating meaning in a new form. <laughs> Pardon? I said Pam's got a workshop for Pam. Oh. Um, in the back there in the green shirt.
Thank you. I was hoping somebody would ask. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's sort of inspiring because it mixes different kinds of, of, uh, of medium and art in terms of uh, moving picture, video, photo, sound, text, all in a site-specific reading experience, which sort of reminds me of the theater in a way. Mm -hmm. Each reading is so different from any other. And uh, this raises unknowable possibility of creating the work, uh, depending on what people can imagine to combine in different ways. And my question would be, uh, who is the director? It sounds as though the author brings in some of the directing responsibility of bringing in research materials and suggesting narration over photos or film, yet the producer knows has the stage manager knowledge of yeah. the medium? This, this is I, a central question. I right? would say that it's in a state of utter flux at the moment, and that I hope that what will increasingly happen is that the author will, in fact, be the director. And I think that right now, um, the producers have more artistic input than maybe they really ought to have, myself included. Um, but the reason that I might have more artistic input than I want to have is because I've been mucking around with the tools long enough that I can, I can help and the author is on a learning curve. Now, Robert Winter, who was one of our authors who um, published music, uh, classical music CDs, which Microsoft then on, went on to license to us, although no, from us, although no one would ever know that. Um, he began where the people at Voyager had a tremendous amount of input on the first CD he did, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, by the fifth CD that he did, uh, Dvorak, a Dvorak CD, he had the whole thing. He had his whole, own team, his own programmer, his own graphic artist, his own team, and it was really just the kind of development you want to see happen, where he goes on that learning curve and we help him up that learning curve, and then he really knows what he wants to do and understands the tools. So I, again, I just, I hope that, you know, the authors will become more and more the full directors and will pick their own team of creative, uh, maybe if, uh, someone is a writer and a visual artist, that's great. Maybe they have uh, someone who they trust and whose artistic vision they trust and they'll collaborate with that person in a team. Um, but I think that's the direction it has to go. And, and right now, as a producer, you know, I find myself making artistic decisions that I, I hope they're right, but it's not really what I want to be doing in the long run. I want, I want to add something to that. It's certainly true that, that this is, I mean, I would like to see this happen. Where producers uh, and artists become the same person, but you've got to remember that in this medium we're talking about, hypertext, interactive, whatever, um, I'm a little worried about that metaphor of the director, uh, because what is the director directing? It's not a stage play. It, it may be dramatic, but it's not a traditional stage play. The lines aren't always the same. You don't know where your reader's going from one point to another. You know the reader's in this, too, uh, and, and I, I just, you know, it's, it's useful to think about directors, it's useful to think about projects having some artistic creative shaping, but you've got to remember this is a really different creative process that we're talking about. I want to have Mark comment on this, and then we're really going to have to wind down. You've been very patient. You can come and talk to the panelists after you. Yeah, I, I want to be more extreme. I think the film model is wrong. Uh, we don't have producers because we're film ignorant. But more fundamentally, Film is made by lots of people, by committees and uh, teams, because the means of distribution were so expensive back 40, 
50 years ago. Uh, the means of production are still expensive, but what really drove it was the means of distribution. We aren't in that world. We haven't been in that world, even in book printing, for the better part of this century. I suspect that we might see, when things settle down, a little bit more collaboration in that we might see more illustration, more graphic content return to the book, the way that the 19th century book was more graphically rich than the 20th century book. But I don't think we're going to see this model of programmers working for writers who have uh, giffers and gophers and entire teams. I don't think this is the dominant model of the future. So At least is? I hope it isn't because we can't afford it. Mark, the question is what is? What is the dominant model? Uh, a, a writer. See, I, I pe just, pe people I, want to talk, people want to know what you think. I, I agree that people want to know what you think and or not maybe what writers think or whoever. But the fact is these things take a tremendous amount of work. And if you were to if I were to sit down and do it myself, it would take me five years. And by that time the technology would be so obsolete that no one would want to look at it. But you know, I mean I really do think that it takes a team because for example, each image, a uh, designer might design one screen and you might have 10 of those screens in the program, and then you were going to have your design assistant implement the other 10 designs using the techniques that you as a designer specify. So I think that there's no other way to do it than to have a team because there's so much data involved and there's so much specific knowledge. For example, one person who is an expert in uh, getting the most performance out of QuickTime, the video, software-driven video, is not necessarily going to be the person who knows the best techniques for rendering a still image. And so I think that you're going to you're going to have to learn the languages of those different disciplines of video and of graphic design and of text and the designer is going to have to understand what the writer says when you know they're just discussing some imperative that the prose brings to the piece. So oh, I, I really but, don't but, see but how this is only true if the essence of what you want to say requires these production values. The tool the basic tools are easy and getting easier. The hard part is writing. I mean Five years for a book, if it's your great book, it's not exorbitant, but the hard part is writing that great book. Getting the type onto the page, yeah, it's a specialized skill, but people can learn it, and the bitter truth, and this hurts if you're a book designer, bitter truth is a really great book with a lousy design, is still a really great book. <laughs> We've got to stop with that. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> And thank you for your patience. The good cigar is still smoking. That's why we like to work with comic artists. Yeah. Is that right on that line where you're struggling with that all the time? Yeah, but you have a team there. I'm just stand back and take you back any questions. She should get rid of her first husband. Marry my friend here. Yeah, well, that's but that's the point. You know, which which model would you? Hello there. How are you? A single creative model or a big team model or a small team? Publisher bashing. I don't blame for trying. I can't believe people are letting right. you get away with it. Yeah.